Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we do pray that as we look into your word, we'll be able to say at the end of this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Father, pray that you'd work through us. Father, pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word and make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to tell, uh, to start this morning by telling you to imagine uh, somebody. She's made up, uh, but let's call her Josie. We haven't got any Josies this morning, have we? Just last time I did this, I accidentally used someone that we actually got a visitor was that name. No Josies? Okay. Well, Josie's been going to church for a long time, invited by a friend long ago. She ended up going to church uh, week in, week out for years. She assumed that she was a Christian and everybody else assumed the same. After all, Josie was there every week. The preaching at the church that she went to was mostly about being nice to people, and Josie was a pretty nice person. There was nothing too deep or doctrinal. Well, she'd been told doctrine divides, so that's probably for the best. Nobody ever spoke to her or challenged her about what she actually believed. And they thought that she was okay, and she thought that she was okay because she went to church and tried to be nice to people. But Jesus, to Josie, was just another human teacher, just a man, a bit better than others, but just a commoner garden human being. Not the Christ, not the Son of God, just a nice person like she was. Now here's the thing, Josie, in the end, dies. And the question is, what happens next? What happens to Josie on Judgment Day? Was she right to think that she was okay? Will she make it to glory or will she be cast out? And it's an important question, isn't it? Because it touches each one of us here. Because it's all about where we spend our eternal destiny, where we go forever. And John in his letter has been giving us tests so that we can know where we'll spend eternity. So that we can know whether we're a child of God or whether we're on the wrong path. Whether we're in the kingdom or out of it. And John, as I said earlier, is a bit like a musical composer. He's got these few tests, but he sets them up and keeps returning to them, sort of playing them a little bit differently each time. So to start with, we have a sort of replay of the doctrine test from last week, but this time it's from a slightly different angle. It's got a slightly different tune. So we start with faith, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. John here starts with the return to that test from last time, the doctrine test. But here it's that Jesus is the Christ, that's what he said. Last time it was that Jesus is the Son of God. And what John is doing is he's sort of covering all his bases here for all the heresies that were beginning to rear their heads in the first century. We mentioned some groups last week that may have struggled to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, equally, there were groups that would have struggled to affirm that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I know that sounds a bit strange to our ears, doesn't it? Because it's virtually become Jesus' surname now, hasn't it? Jesus Christ. But we forget that Christ has as content, has meaning. Some groups by John, John's day had already started to reject the idea that Jesus was really uh, from the Jewish roots of Christianity. 
They would have been happy with Jesus being the son of God, but not Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. These trends a generation later would give birth to Marcion, who rejected the whole of the Old Testament, and interestingly, all of John's writings as well. So John here is is giving tests to sort of lay down who is in and who is not. And John is not looking to get the maximum number of people on board, so to speak. He isn't looking for a lowest common denominator fellowship with other believers that gets the most people who name Jesus uh, in, uh, in some way together. He's looking to draw lines, clear lines as to what a Christian is. Because if we don't know what a Christian is and isn't, then how can we know whether we are a Christian or not? So John is saying that there are certain beliefs that we must hold in order to legitimately be called a Christian. And if we don't hold them, then we're not a Christian. Now, there is a danger that we draw too many lines, isn't there? There's a danger that we make ourselves so exclusive that we exclude everybody but ourselves. But I think in our day and age, the danger is more that we draw no lines. Actually, we just say, well, if you self-identify as a Christian, then that's fine, come in. But here, John is saying, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're not a Christian. You cannot have assurance of your faith, and actually, you're heading to a lost eternity says John. Let me give you some other definite ones that we see in scripture just while we're on the subject. If you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, then you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, then you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the Trinity, that God is three and one, then you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that Jesus is coming back again, then you're not a Christian. Now, that is why documents like the Nicene Creed that we read earlier are helpful. They're not infallible, they're not the Bible, but they can be helpful in in seeing whether we're in or out of the faith. They're tried and tested statements that Christians have been able to affirm down through the ages. They're doing what John did, drawing lines, only dealing with questions and heresies that came up later on. But John here is saying, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ and all that entails? Do I believe it? Not just do I confess it, do I say it with my lips when I'm saying a creed, do I believe it? Down here, he moves his language in other things when he's doing these other parts of the symphony, he talks about affirming it. But here he talks about believing it. Do we believe it? And it's something in one sense only we ourselves can know because we We can't see other people's hearts, can we? But if I don't believe that, then I'm not born of God, says John. I'm not a Christian. But he doesn't say that to be exclusionary, to sort of exclude people. He really says it for our good, to be helpful. I've checked with the boys that I can do this story. But uh, with our boys, we often have a question in the card. Have you got your seatbelt on? You might have sort of got this... uh, uh, conversation going, have you got your seatbelt? Have you got your seatbelt on right? And the answer to it is always yes. Yes, we've got it on right. Then you ask, well, hang on, have you got the strap through the booster seat? No. Now, when I ask, is the strap through the booster seat? When they answer no, that's helpful because I can then go and sort that out. They can sort that out. If we don't know that there's something wrong, 
then how can we fix it? If there's never a no, then how can we actually change that to be a yes? If you don't know that you're not a Christian, then you won't be looking to become one. So John doesn't say this so much to condemn, but to inform. If you think you're a Christian and don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, prophesied in the Old Testament, the greatest son of David, the king of the world, then that's what you should believe. If you're wrong, if you're you're believing something else, then actually believe this, become a Christian. John's saying, I'm telling you on the behalf of the apostles, Jesus is the Christ. And John is saying all the way through the letter, we know this is the case because we knew him. We were there, we saw him, we had fellowship with him. And if you want fellowship with him, you've got to have fellowship with us. John 1, uh, 1 John 1 verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. No ifs, no buts. If we want fellowship with Jesus we want to spend eternity with him, then we need to agree with John and the apostles that Jesus is the Christ. Otherwise, we're deluding ourselves. We need faith, the right faith. Second, though, we also need love. Let me read to you verses two and three again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, we could have named this section the obedience test, and indeed some commentaries that I was looking at this week do. Do we obey the commandments is the question posed to us, really. But to be honest, when I read that, part of me sort of recoils on the inside. I have Paul's words in Galatians ringing in my head, Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul there is speaking not just of our justification, our rescue, our our, our coming into the faith, but also of our sanctification, of our becoming like Jesus. And he's saying obeying the rules, commandments, laws was not how you got in, So why would you think that that was a sensible way to try and grow? And with that in mind, why would John throw us back to the commandments? Well, the question we need to ask is, what does John mean by commandments? What is it that we're to keep that means that we can have confidence in our salvation? If it's the Ten Commandments, then aren't we doomed to fail? Isn't it our understanding that we have failed to meet God's standards, that we have fallen short, and actually as believers, we continue to fall short? Despite a new vigor to live to please God, don't we fail to keep the law of Moses? What assurance can we gain by looking to a test that we're doomed to fail? Thankfully, John has told us what he's talking about. In fact, he tells us multiple times in his gospel and letters, and indeed this letter, what he means by a commandment. Let me just give you some quotes from John. 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandments, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 2 John chapter 5, verse 5. 
And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I was writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Or on Jesus' lips from John's Gospel, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Or finally, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Do you get the picture? The command that we are to keep is to love one another. And also believe in Jesus, because John likes to add that little extra thing in every time, doesn't he? Play it slightly differently. But it's that simple. That's what John means when he says that these commands aren't burdensome. This is not rocket science, nor is it undoable like the law of Moses. Jesus speaks about those whose commandments are burdensome. Same same word, they're the Pharisees. So Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Sadly, so often this passage has been taught as though we were Pharisees. Instead of it being about love, it becomes about a list. Lists of varying lengths of forbidden behaviours. Do you know what I mean? A Christian doesn't lie, steal, cheat, swear, lust, or discriminate. They don't smoke, go out drinking, watch any film over PG. They don't watch television, go dancing, or listen to pop music. uh, Some of you are giggling. I've heard all those things over the years. Now, please don't hear me wrong. The way that we behave really matters. Holiness really matters. Some of the things that I mentioned are outright wrong and sinful. Some of them are just foolish and unwise, but not sinful. And other of them are disputable matters where Christians can genuinely disagree. But none of those things will tell you whether someone is a Christian or not. Even the sinful stuff. King David, for example, commits adultery and murder when he's already a believer. The Apostle Paul discriminates against Gentiles years after he's put his trust in Jesus. Some of the Corinthians go haywire, but Paul says if they repent that they can come back in. So a Christian is not someone who is sinless, But if I can coin a word, it's someone who's repentful. They mourn over their sin and they seek to end it. They don't wallow in their sin, but they turn from it. They don't habitually lie. They don't habitually steal. They don't habitually cheat. But at times, and for seasons, sometimes they do mess up. That's not because they're not Christians. It's because they're not in glory yet. If we're doing those things, though, habitually, we can have no confidence, we can have no assurance, can we? But what John is talking about here really is something deeper. He's asking if what we do is out of love or not. Love is the key for John. We know we love God, says John, because we love his children. And also then he says we know we love his children because we love God. In other words, we can't separate those two. But love is what it's all about. No one can truly love God without loving his children. No one can truly love his children without loving God. It's a package deal. Whichever one we're doubting, we can look at the other. But this is why I'm hesitant to make this the obedience test. 
Because really, it's just another way of restating what we've said before is the love test. And a little bit of the doctrine test thrown in there as well. It's about do we love one another? Does that mean there's no role for the other commandments of Scripture in our love for God or our love for one another? Well, Jesus' answers was that the commandments can be summed up as love for God and love for others. And what we have in the commandments of Scripture is a fleshing out of what that looks like. If we love somebody, we're not going to steal from them. If we love somebody, we're not going to lie to them. If a man loves his wife, it's not going to be burdensome if she says, have no woman before me. So with God, when he says, have no other gods before me, it's not burdensome. There's a sort of common sense to it, isn't there? But on the other hand, our heads are so muddled about what love is, and our hearts are so self-deceptive about how we should love, that the Bible is there to help us know that we're on the right track, to help us know how we're to love one another and to love God. But it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I did it in the name of love. So much wrong has been done in the world, hasn't it, in the name of love. John says God is love, not love is God, as though love overrules all, over, all other moral imperatives. No, God tells us how we are to love one another in his word, the Bible. Just as the Bible is our authority on what to believe, it is also our authority on how to behave. But we're not to treat it as a ladder to heaven or a, a tick list for treats. No, it's an infallible guide on God's love for us and on how we are to love God and others in return. So commands alone won't hack it. We need the Spirit's help to love others as God would have us love. Thankfully, though, God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered to love one another. So we're to have faith, love. You're going to think it's hope, aren't you? But it's not. Victory. Victory, verses 4 and 5. Let me read it to you. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is our victory that over has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The word overcomes here and victory is probably a word that we're familiar with. It's Nike or Nike, depending on uh, when you were born probably, actually is when the, the, the different pronunciations come in. But Nike or Nike means to be victorious. And again, John multiplies that word over and over again, four times in just two verses. But I wonder what you hear when you hear somebody talking about Christians that are victorious, Christians that overcome the world. Perhaps you picture missionaries spreading out over the globe, spreading the message of Jesus. Perhaps you picture Christians winning public debates against prominent atheists on TV or something like that. Perhaps you think of unbiblical laws being overturned in Parliament or a return to moral values. Perhaps on an individual level, you think of victory over some stubborn sin that won't go away. But this is what victory looks like, says John. This is victory over the world when someone puts their trust in Jesus and they keep trusting in Jesus. That's what victory is. Despite all the world throws at them, despite all the temptations and trials, despite all the stresses and sorrows, they keep trusting in Jesus. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
our faith, our trust, our ongoing belief in the Lord Jesus. We've not turned aside to false teaching. We've not turned back to the world and its baubles and trinkets. We've not given in to the daily pressure that mounts on us. We've kept believing. When Paul in 2 Timothy talks about the victor's crown, that means that he's been victorious. What does he talk about? Is it his numerous missionary trips? Is it his countless converts? Is it his progress in holiness? Well, this is what he writes in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What was the victory that meant that he would get a crown? He kept believing in Jesus. And both Paul and John were writing in context where that was not automatic. Paul had his Demases who had deserted him. Why, Paul tells us, because he was in love with the present world. Demas was one who didn't overcome the world. The world overcame him. John wrote to us in chapter 2 of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There were people in John's day who didn't keep trusting in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but turned aside to other things. And John tells us at the beginning of chapter 4 that they've gone into the world showing that they were from the world. So in the words of Journey, John is saying, don't stop believing. This is victory. And today, in the face of the atheist lobby telling us we're stupid, in the face of some of the woke lobby telling us that we're hateful, in the face of some of the theologically liberal telling us that we're out of touch, to keep believing is victory. It's overcoming the world. The world is John's way of talking about the underlying framework of the world, the part of the world that wants us to fail. The world wants us to ditch our faith or compromise it, to keep the bits the world likes and ditch the rest or downplay the rest. But when we find that our message is the same as the world's, then something has gone wrong. When we find ministers and pastors preaching what the world wants to hear rather than what it needs to hear, then something has gone wrong. The applause of the world is tempting, isn't it? Deconvert and the world will applaud you. Condemn biblical Christianity as extreme and the world will cheer you on. Downplay the unpopular bits like sin and wrath and judgment and the world will tell you you've chosen a better way. The way of love, they'll say. But that's not how God understands love. Do you notice if you were here last week that God's definition of love involves sin and wrath and judgment? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away sin, uh, wrath, sorry, for our sins. 1 John 4, 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we have confidence when? For the day of judgment. Take those things away, sin, wrath, and judgment, and actually you can't really understand God's love. God loved us so much that although we have sinned, although we are deserving of wrath and judgment, he's lovingly provided his son to avert that wrath, to take the judgment on himself. But that only makes sense if we know about sin and wrath and judgment. Otherwise, it's a father sending his son to die for no reason. And that would make God a loveless monster. So when we begin to go the world's way, 
We don't just lose the unpalatable bits. We lose everything, even God's love. So we mustn't be overcome by the world, but keep believing the gospel. Even in the face of a world that doesn't want us to believe it. But the encouragement here is that if you are still believing in Jesus, if you are hanging on in there this morning, you are overcoming the world. The victorious Christian is not one that's sort of floating flawlessly through life without any struggle. Struggle is actually a sign of life, isn't it? Finding it hard is not a sign that we're not overcoming, that we're not victorious. It's actually a sign that we're still in the battle. We're still there. The ones who float in water under closer examination are generally corpses. It's the ones who struggle that are actually alive. And it's the ones who struggle that survive. So coming back to where we started, how does Josie fit in with what John has told us? Faith. She doesn't believe Jesus is the Christ. Love. She doesn't love like Jesus. As nice as she is, because actually she's not trusting in Jesus. Victory. She's not an overcomer because she's not got the faith that continues. Because what she's got that she believes that carries on is not actually right. She's persisted in error. So from what John has told us this morning, Josie is in trouble when it comes to Judgment Day. She faces a lost eternity. And it might be this morning that you know a Josie. It might be this morning that you are a Josie. What can we do to help those Josies who haven't reached Judgment Day, who are still alive in the light of what we've seen? Let me give you three things to take away just quickly as we close. Firstly, we need to be super clear on the gospel from the front and in conversation with others. Not in a nasty, unloving way, but in a concerned way. To be honest, if someone had just talked to Josie about Jesus rather than about the weather, it would probably have come out that she wasn't really a Christian. We'd have been able to help her. Or if the preacher had been explicit about who is going to heaven and who isn't, not concerned with the maximum number of bums on seats and not upsetting anyone, but concerned with making disciples of Jesus as he commanded us, that actually that would have told her what's going on. So we need to be super clear on the gospel. That's number one. Number two, we need to show real gospel-shaped, Christ-like love to one another. That way, the love that is not like that will stand out like a sore thumb. And so many people, we've heard lots of testimonies over the past few months, haven't we, from people who've been coming into membership. So many of them, it's been the factor of, seeing God's love expressed, isn't it, by believers. Hopefully the Josies of this world will see that their love is not like our love. They'll see that something's missing and they'll seek it. So that's number two, showing real gospel love. And then thirdly, we need to keep doing those things. The world will be happy if we just give up. Josie will think there's nothing wrong, and the devil is quite happy with Josie sat in a pew thinking that she's going to heaven sleepwalking into a lost eternity. But sometimes feathers need to be rustled. Sometimes we need to speak and keep speaking. So let's pray that God will give us the strength that we need to love and keep loving and believe and keep believing. And let's pray that the Josies of our world would see the truth about Jesus and believe. Let's pray. Father God, help us to keep believing the gospel. 
Father, help us to keep loving one another, Father, even when it feels hard. Father, even when it feels like we're getting nothing back. Father, help us to show that love that Christ showed. And Father, when the world bites and the world shouts at us, Father, help us to be that one who looks for the audience of one, looks to you and keeps trusting in you. Give us the strength that we need to do that and the strength to speak. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.